Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone. It's Julie, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Last week, we started The Muddle of the Middle, a brand new series where I'm trying to guide you through this murky, undefined stage of the scientific career ladder. And in this episode, we're going to dive in deep and find out what it's really like in the mid-career. Cara Tannenbaum, a professor at Montreal University in Canada, is a clinical researcher. And during her mid-career, the goal, or so she was told, was to do an intervention study and to publish a clinical trial in a big journal. Now, she got funded for two. But what people don't tell you is that it takes four or five years to run a clinical trial. So at least in clinical trial fields, you know, you have to wait till the clinical trial is over to publish. It always takes longer than you think. So as well as worrying about timelines, there was the concern that you couldn't publish anything until the trial was over. And then there was the trouble with recruiting candidates and time spent writing grants looking after students and looking after her children and looking after a poorly relative and... And you you wonder, is this what it's all about? And is this treadmill going to continue forever? Where is the light at the end of the tunnel? For Cara, the light came in the form of a shift in her career. She applied to become the scientific director of the Institute of Gender and Health at the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and she got the job. It was her way to do what she could to help women and older adults in the world of clinical trials. She wanted to change the system. How do you make sure that from now on, when we run clinical trials, we include women and older adults? Um, How do you make sure that when you develop new therapies, you look at female cells and, and male cells and not just the default being male? And I realized that in order to change those systems, I had to be sitting at a table where the rules were made. So that was my motivation um, to move into a position, frustrating at times, where I can make a difference greater than just the single individual. So now Cara divides her working time between research and leadership. I still publish 10 papers a year. Um, I still have I still have students. Um, I've given up administrative responsibilities at the university and some of my teaching responsibilities. And I found another doctor to help with my patients. And I had to ask her, with all this going on, how does she stop herself from burning out? 
Well, that's when colleagues and, and myself, we started talking about the mid-career slump and we developed a support group. I think it's helpful to share the struggles that you're facing. Via social media call-outs and even one-on-one phone calls, I've collected a bunch of questions to try and answer in this series. And a question I heard from a lot of early career researchers whilst working on this project was, what is the mid-career really like? Well, in the mid-career, a lot can happen. So someone could be mid-career and be in their mid-30s. Someone could be mid-career and be 55. A lot of people choose science as a second or even third career. A lot of people take time off and then come back. So your biological age may be very different than others in your environment. Uh, Two mid-career female scientists, one of them could, you know, have just had a, a baby later in life and another could be going through perimenopause. So one might be having hot flashes and sleepless nights um, because of night sweats and menopause, and the other may be having sleepless nights because they have kids at home. So with that overview from Cara, and in the spirit of sharing some of the struggles of the mid-career, we get real. Life is different for everyone, and the mid-career stage takes on many forms. And often it does involve a move of some sort, either between jobs, between careers, or even location. So... Up next, I'm going to share three stories where we find out how these moves can impact people. We'll hear about how to manage raising six children while starting a new career as a scientist in your midlife. Yes, you heard me right. Six children and a brand new career. You wouldn't have believed it possible, but this mama makes it sound, yeah, well, not easy, but certainly doable. And we'll also hear from two people who make career changes in their mid-career, one from industry to academia and one the other way around. But I think the most important takeaway from this episode is that puppy cuddles can soften even the most stressful and painful decisions life can throw at us. So as we heard Cara say earlier in the episode, some people can start their scientific career when they are closer to midlife. And at age 35, after having spent 15 years at home raising her six children in Arizona in the US, Bethany Kolbaba Kirchner decided she wanted to do something outside of the home. She thought back to what she loved as a child, and that was science. She set herself a goal, a lofty one, to get a biochemistry PhD from the University of Arizona. Pre-kids, her training was in French, so Bethany had to start from the beginning. And I mean literally from the very beginning. She had to look at what the university required people to do in order to join the biochemistry PhD course. And that is exactly what she did. She enrolled in prerequisite classes through the local community colleges. And I took one class at a time for a few years because that's all the time I had to devote, uh, because I was still a very busy mother raising my children. Uh, I would get up at four in the morning to study, uh, so that I would get up before the kids got up. And I did that for a few years, until my children were a little bit older, and all of them were in school. And then I started taking classes in person, because I had gotten to a certain level where they didn't have online classes for me anymore. Uh, And so I kind of transitioned into taking university classes 
and became very interested in, in research. And so as an undergraduate, I got into a lab and it happened to be a lab where we, they were working on proteins. And I basically fell in love with proteins and protein engineering. And the rest is history. Now uh, it has been about see, 11 years since I started. And I am a year away from finishing my PhD. Fingers crossed. <laughs> you are not a typical grad student. You are, you know, 15 plus years older than the traditional graduate student. So how do you fit in with your peers who are, who are, you know, at the same sort of educational stage in their scientific career right now? Like, how does that fit and work for you? I guess you would have to ask them <laughs> how they feel about me. I feel like I fit in just fine. I mean, obviously I am a lot older than them. In fact, I have children that are their age, uh, which maybe is strange. And in fact, they are teaching some of my children in their classes, which is funny. But I feel like I fit in just fine. I don't do a lot of social events with them because my social sphere is very different. But that's not always what graduate school is. It's also like the exchange of ideas. And in that, I feel very comfortable. Um, I feel like I'm totally accepted. As we heard in the first episode of this series, and as it says on the tin, the middle stage is often a bit of a muddle. And adding a big family into the mix can't make anything easier. Over the years that I've been doing this podcast and reporting in the field of science careers, I know that many early career researchers have asked, is it possible to have a family and be a scientist? Well, who better to ask than Bethany? Here's what she does. I think that starting a career as an older person with a lot of responsibilities does present its challenges because you do have those responsibilities. And I take raising my children very seriously and don't want to shirk that responsibility or do a poor job. So yes, there is that balance that I have to do. Like there are times where I cannot go into the lab because I need to drive a child to a practice or attend a game, which is extremely important for me to do. So I guess I have handled that challenge in a couple of ways. First of all, when I was kind of ramping into my academic trajectory, where I started, you know, taking classes online and then taking one class in person and then two and then working in the labs kind of, it was kind of a, a ramping up. I foresaw that my children would need to be more self-sufficient and uh, would need to be able to handle, for example, coming home on their own and maybe some basic tasks like doing their own laundry or making their own snacks and things. So I had a plan and taught them all those types of things that they would need to know to be more self-sufficient and worked on that. I also got the help of my, my husband who uh, has been able to get a little bit more flexible work schedule. And so that's been very helpful because he can kind of pick up someone or um, handle the, you know, repairman who comes uh, once in a while. The other thing I did was I prepared myself. So I got very serious about my time management skills and read a lot of different books about time management and listened to podcasts and things to get little tips. And so I, um, and I just wouldn't, put those tips in to my life. 
so that I would have more time to work in the lab and to do my studies. I also am very, very organized in the lab. I um, make sure that I plan my day very closely, but also giving myself some wiggle room for surprises. So I guess I would say I plan my day 80%. And so when 20% of things pop up, I, I can handle them. So Bethany started her science career closer towards her midlife in a very junior position, literally from the very beginning. Andrew Forbes started his mid-career in a new position too. But unlike Bethany, Andrew came at it with a background in industry. After finishing his PhD, Andrew started a company with some friends. And 10 years later, when the company sold, Andrew moved into an independent research institution, which is like a semi-academic place of work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So although I was now a, a permanent researcher and playing that game, I was very much the junior player, although I was somewhere in the middle of my career. And, and how did that feel for you, you know, as, as coming in as not necessarily junior in age, but certainly junior in, for want of a better word, rank at, at that particular institution? I think it's very easy at that stage of your career to feel a bit insignificant, to feel a little bit overwhelmed by what others are doing, typically with very large groups and large students, uh, bodies, large postdoc numbers, and you're not quite there yet. This might sound familiar to some of us. This imposter syndrome can happen to anybody, but Andrew found a way to make things a little easier for himself. And he realised he actually had a lot of value to bring to the table with his background in industry. You know, rather than being compared on an apple to apple basis, I could always argue, well, you know, my career was a slightly different path. So you can't compare me directly to you. I've got advances that you can't put on your CV while you have some that I can't put on yet. But I'll be there very soon. So I think that helped tremendously. You can view it almost as a sideways move coming in with a different uh, value proposition to what the others were offering. Andrew is now a professor at Witwatersrand University in South Africa. And when looking back to his mid-career, he told me that this stage actually felt very short-lived. And he puts it down to his very careful choice about the research direction he chose when coming back into academia. So I chose a field that, that was very much aligned with my skills you know, the sort of things I love to do and I was good at. And that sounds kind of obvious, but surprisingly, it's not. A lot of people choose fields based on how topical they are and not based on what they're really good at or what they really enjoy. And the second thing I did that really made a huge difference was that I entered the field that looked, you know, I really liked it and was going to be great to work in, but I entered from a position of strength. What does that mean? Well, he used his industry know-how to his advantage. Andrew had spent a decade working with lasers, and when he came back into academia, he could see that in the field of structured light, 
nobody was doing this. And at the time, structured light was mostly orbital angular momentum. It was controlling light beams digitally. It was a little bit of quantum work. But people were not really doing laser work in that context. What I did was I came into this field of structured lights with this laser angle, which others didn't have. And that helped me to very quickly stand apart. It helped me to accelerate my position within that community. So, for example, if people were going to call a conference and discuss structured light, of course, you would say, well, who's the quantum person? And, oh, yes, this chap in Vienna. And who is the classical person? Oh, yes, this chap in Glasgow. And so go, and then you would say, well, who's the laser person? And, oh, it's Andrew down in South Africa. And I think having that niche is very important. So when people make the move, no matter which direction it is, I think you need to look very closely at what you're good at. What is the community that you're entering missing? Where could you add some unique value and take that as your starting point? My final story for today comes from someone who moved the other way during her mid-career. Leslie Risler loved science, and she still does. It's part of who she is. It's her identity, and she spent almost 12 years at the University of Alabama in the US working her way up the career ladder, from early career researcher to tenure, and then through the mid-career stage all the way to being a full professor of biology. But then some huge personal life-changing events happened which could have derailed her plans. Here's Leslie's story. I was settled at that time. I felt successful, um, but always wanting to be challenged. But sometimes the dream job isn't quite what you had in mind. I loved being a faculty member. I loved graduate students and mentoring and all of that. Um, But I also was doing the same thing year after year after year. Also, you know, it is, it's really hard to get grants and, and to write grants all the time and to keep up with all the literature and the techniques, especially if you don't, you're not in a institution where it's easy to get postdocs and graduate students, right? It, it's difficult to attract people in particular institutions because of where they are, perhaps, or for a variety of reasons. At the same time, Leslie had some other personal things going on. I got divorced, you know, I had um, children. They were middle school, um, starting high school age. I was interested in, you know, getting them into really good schools too. So that, that was part of it. Am I going to be single in Alabama? You know, there were lots of those kinds of things going through my mind as well. Personal issues or life, basically, at all stages will impact your decisions. And making decisions when so much is going on is really, really hard. Whether it's a two-body problem or looking after elderly family members, whatever it might be. Leslie decided it was time for her to leave her academic career behind and start on a different track. So she took on a role 650 miles away at the National Science Foundation in Virginia, relocating her family in order to do so. For me... um... It was about, you know, where did, where did I want to be geographically? Um, who were the people that I was interacting with? Colleagues? Um, all of that went into play. I don't know. I don't have a really good answer for that. It was just a, 
you know, it was really hard when I made the decision that I was going to take the job at NSF and resign from my academic job. I sat in my lab, shut the door in a closet and sat on the floor and, and cried because you work your entire life to go through, you know, to get an academic job and then do really well and get tenure and, and publish and get grants and students and all of that. So it was really hard decision. Um, and I didn't know if I was making the right one, but in the end, I'm very happy and I feel like I work with fantastic people and I get a, you know, write solicitations to make a difference for other people. And that's very satisfying. And you know, that, that moment that you had in that closet, were those tears of joy or tears of sadness? It, they were more tears of sadness. It was kind of like a big part of my life. I knew that I was severing and that I couldn't come back to it, you know, and I'd worked really hard and, and now I was moving on and that was, that was scary. Um, and it, it was just like, you're signing that piece of paper. You have made a serious decision that will affect the rest of your life and your kids. Um, so it was a big deal. Alongside making a big career decision, Leslie was going through a divorce and dealing with health issues too. I also had like a bilateral mastectomy um, and reconstructive surgery during that time as well. So, <laughs> so there was a lot of, there was other stresses, personal stress, stresses as well. Wow. Just throw that in there as well. Oh my goodness. Wow. That yeah, it was all, it was preventative. It was prophylactic, you know, um, because of genetic and family history, but it was also something that I needed to do to make sure that I was around for my kids later. So that was a big decision as well. And my father died. He had Alzheimer's and was uh, in the latter stages of that. So there were a lot of things. Wow, okay, that mid-career stage definitely wasn't yeah. an easy one. Yeah. Goodness, how, how was it handling all of that at the same time whilst working as hard as I know people work to get that full professor role? Um, I, I just don't, I don't think that my situation was special or unique, which is, you know, it gives me a way to see other people, you know, who are in it now and they're, you know, they're experiencing COVID, we all are, but for researchers, it's a particularly hard time, I think, for all career stages, maybe more so for early career right now, I'm not sure. But for me, yeah, there were a lot of, a lot of challenges, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's unique. And it's, um, you know, it, it's a hard stage. You had all those personal things going on, the divorce, the, the double mastectomy, you know, and the, the career decisions going on, what did you do to stop yourself from falling apart and to make sure that you stayed, you know, mentally in a, a good mindset in order to see you through to the other side of all this? I think for me, being a biologist is who I am. And I love biology. I love evolutionary biology. It's so much a part of who I am that I, I cannot imagine my life without without science so I I I would never throw that away or I would be completely lost <laughs> I guess so I 
I don't have any magic answers of how it all worked out or whatever, but I also got a golden retriever and that helped a lot. <laughs> Puppy cuddles are definitely yeah, right there. a brilliant yeah. thing. They are wonderful. With so many things going on in the mid-career and often the mid-life, I imagine it can sometimes feel totally overwhelming. There's so much on the to-do list that you often don't know where to start. Cara Tannenbaum, Bethany Kolbaba Kirchner and several of the other people who I spoke to for this series said that being in control of your time helps you when you feel that everything else in your life is out of control. So in the next episode of this series on the muddle of the middle, we'll hear a little about how some academics manage their time and more importantly, why it works for them. Because, as Cara says, It's more, it's a lot. I don't think that anyone ever took a course on how to manage mid-career. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 